who here doesn't know this man? Oh, there's a lot of people here that don't know him. Okay, so it needs a little historical thing. They don't care. I promise they won't. It won't make any impact. But it, My I, name's Professor Duncan Trussell. I have a PhD in religious studies. I uh, am an entrepreneur. I started a company called Google, sold it about 15 years ago. And now I travel the world doing uh, teachings, and I'm best friends with the Dalai Lama, who calls me all the time. Calls me all the time. We just talk. So one day he called me after he spoke to the Dalai Lama. He was on the phone with him. Yep. And he said... The Dalai Lama hates you. Oh. I said, Raghu, I don't get it. He's like, you're the one person he told me in the whole world he doesn't like, including the president of China. He's like, I just don't good, like Raghu. Good thing I know, you know, the Dalai Lama would never think like that. Well. Um, but he did call me and he did say, you know, you ought to be. He had just talked to Ramdas, actually, not the Dalai Lama. And he said, you ought to. You ought to start a podcast. Go a podcast? I don't know. You probably didn't know I was in the radio business before. I don't think you did. No, but I think at the time, the Love Server Member Foundation was like doing Xeroxes. Like you guys hadn't exactly advanced. You were like doing those like okay. free Xerox, those things, the purpley yeah. things that carcinogenic ink that you would mail to people. Jesus, <laughs> wasn't that bad? We were a little behind, a little bit in the Luddite world, but uh, not that bad. Uh, but so he made that suggestion based on the fact that he had started a, a podcast, the Duncan Trussell Family Hour, and he's an. Uh, would you say? Thank you. He's a. Thank you very much. Even the folks that don't know me can applaud. Go ahead. It's a good thing. <laughs> He's a bhakta, which means devotee of Joe Rogan. Get what? <laughs> you gonna That's say what you that? told me when, when you said, I never told you I was a devotee of uh, Joe Rogan. Well, you put it as a friend, but it was seemed very devoted to Joe. Yeah. Uh, he <laughs> knows how to press my buttons, man. <laughs> you did a He's television a friend. He's show. Awesome. You, you did a TV show with him. So because I did a TV show with him, that means that I am a devotee of him? I watch the show. Anyhow, so he did all that. <laughs> and then the other thing that's just a little more uh, just as um, providential was the fact that he started talking about Ramdas on his podcast all the time. And then... I mean, there's... Okay, how many of you here have heard of Duncan and maybe are even here because of him? That's a lot of people, that's okay? Cool. And that's what's happened. So, Duncan Trussell. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. So, Did I ever tell you that crazy dream I had before I knew any of the stuff about Maharaji and Hanuman and all that? I don't think so. See, I had the craziest dream before I heard, you know, one of the main tenets of the cult that you've all become members of over this weekend. <laughs> I, it was the craziest dream. Yeah, I was in the mountains. It was snowing. And there was this little cabin. And I walked into the cabin. And sitting there was Ramdas, 
in like old Hanuman, like an old like monkey, like a really, really old, old gray monkey. And I just, I don't know, that was a dream. I remember thinking, what's Ramdas doing with that old monkey? You didn't but know from Hanuman. I didn't know there was a Hanuman connection. I never made, I never knew the, the, the thing, you know. Of course, my subconscious had absorbed it somehow. But my thinking mind never, like, made the connection. I'm, I mean, I would imagine that is what it was. Yeah. It was a cool thing for my subconscious to spit up. And that's it? He was just there, and you were there having darshan with Ramdas. Boring dream. I shouldn't have mentioned it. <laughs> Honestly, I shouldn't have mentioned it. Oh, no, it's tell a... anyone a dream. No one wants to hear your dreams. No, it's not true. Uh, so, just to switch gears a little bit. Please. What do you, I haven't asked you this either, you know, just hanging out or whatever. What, is, what do you think about becoming nobody? What does it mean to you? Oh, yeah. Well... You know, I really, I don't remember who said it. Someone said maybe we reframe it to become, instead of becoming nobody, you don't have to be special. I like that a lot better than becoming nobody. I mean, it's easier to understand that. Um, but the becoming nobody part, I think, is if, you, if you've taken psychedelics, you have experienced that probably. And if you manage to get past the terror that usually precedes the dissolution, yeah, <laughs> and 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 the site you took enough of the psychedelic, or the psychedelic was powerful enough that it wrenched your hands off of that one final sliver of self that you cling to when you're freaking out as the drugs kick in, and you like pop into that whatever you want to call it. Usually, the only way you know you've been there is when you're coming out of it and you're like, holy shit. What I, you know, on mushrooms, I remember having taken this wonderful dose of mushrooms and um, sitting there and I, and I started thinking like I was doing something. What was I doing? I was doing something. I was, I was being something. Oh, I was being a human. I was a human. Oh, I'm a human being. Damn it. Damn it. I'm a human. Is before that, it was that blissful state of, I don't know what you call it. I don't know what that is. But so to me, fr from the psychedelic perspective, it reminds me of those times I've sort of decompressed from my identity and expanded into something that seems to be uh, infinite. And then from a less exciting level, it, 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 it's that place where, uh, as uh, I think Chogim Trumpa describes generosity as sort of like, for a second, giving up your project is the way he puts it. So you give up your project, whatever it was, whatever your big thing was when you're with people. You put down your agenda, your project, and you're there with them. And for a second, they're not part of whatever your Game of Thrones level scheming is because you've put that to the side. And they feel that. That also is in, in a less romantic, cool, psychedelic way to me what becoming nobody means. Yeah, and it's what I've described. He, I think I've described it here, but whenever the movie shows and they ask me to come and do a Q&A and they say, what is becoming nobody? And I say the exact same thing about when I first met Ramdas. That I got total attention. He put his, as you put it, his whole Game of Thrones game down through two personalities. 
Ram Dass and Richard Alpert. He had to... Yeah. And then there was total attention. And in that attention is the nobody, the, the true nobody, which is only then can you really serve anybody. Yeah. If you can't give complete attention, you, you know, what are we doing? And we see it every day. You know, I'll, you'll say, okay, hey, I just, something just happened to me. I really want to tell you about it. And I go, okay, yeah, that's good. As soon as I do that and look away from you, it's, it's all over. And I'm, uh, you know, that's something that I have had to work on and do have to work on quite a bit. And we all do it. Listening, you mean? Yeah, just listening. Yeah. Listening and paying attention at the same time. Yeah, that's right. Well, yeah, this is the, uh, I did a podcast with Trudy and I told her the story once. Uh, this, I was at a party and I was giving someone, like it was late at night, and I was giving someone an ear beating about modular synthesizers. And um, no one wants to hear about that. No one wants to hear about your, unless you, you have one and most people don't. You and I could talk for hours. But when you talk to your friends about your synthesizers, they, I promise you, they're like, I would right now, if I had Xanax, I would take it. If I could like put myself into like an induced coma right now, anything to escape hearing you talk about CV cables or it's very boring. It's like, if you don't like model airplanes, someone talking about glue or whatever, but I was ear beating this poor guy and I, I was sort of high. So I was in that place of like, oh, I can't stop. Like, I'm going to keep like, it's like a, if a mountain could watch an avalanche happen, you know, it's that feeling of like, I don't know how to stop this catastrophe. I want to, but I can't. And he was really polite. He listened. That was the worst part. He was a good listener. So he was totally listening to me. And then finally he's like, okay, goodbye. You know, he didn't add anything. He just walked away. I'm like, what was wrong with me? Well, anyway, the story gets super dark because I found out a, a few weeks later he, he, he passed in a, in a car accident. He was in a car accident. And, you know, so for the last, like, two weeks of his life, 30 minutes was a brutal ear beating from a guy with booze on his breath and, like, dilated eyes. You gotta get a morphogene, man. You'll love it. The sounds are incredible. And what what Trudy said is is if we can bring into our consciousness the true realization that everyone we love, everyone we know, the people we don't know are gonna die, then we might spend less time being bad listeners. Because, you know, when someone's dying on their deathbed, you find that you don't need to exert yourself to, to be a good listener. To be totally present. You want to take in every second. You want to be there for every moment of their last, you know, few hours on the planet. You're not checking your phone. You're not changing the subject. You're not injecting your own bullshit. Maybe you are, but you know what I mean? So this is, Trudy was saying, you know, if we can really have that sort of true realization about our mortality, maybe we'll be better listeners. Yeah. That, that reminds me of Carlos Castaneda's in Don Juan, The Way of the Aki book. Yeah, sure. Uh, always keep your death on your left shoulder so you have that presence of preciousness in every moment. So. That's unbearable, though. Who could do that? 
Don Juan did it. Yeah, well, he was also torturing lizards. Was he? It's a different podcast, but oh, okay, he was brutal yeah. to animals. Really? Oh, my God. Throw that out. Okay, next. Don't just you go ruin next. everything. You, what? You I didn't ruined the you. whole thing. How do you think the lizards he blinded felt? Oh, Jesus. Oh, God. All right. Sad. Um, so, Duncan and I have been working on a project for quite some time now. And uh, we uh, basically stole a line from Krishna Das, who talks about this a lot, although I didn't hear him mention it so far, uh, which is the movie of me. And he says, we wake up in the morning and we are the star, the protagonist, we're the director, the producer of the whole thing, and all day long we set up our lives to be exactly how we want them to be, to control everything and basically uh, build up this gigantic story that we believe in and we, we're going to believe in that no matter what because letting go of that is frightening just like taking a psychedelic and getting to the point where you force to let go. That's kind of how we are day to day. So we've been doing this, and um, it's like the movie of me to the movie of us. How do we do all of that? Which is about what we're doing, what we've been doing here, and it's about what any, basically what any uh, retreat or Dharma talk eventually is about. Hopefully we get the kind of methods that we need to extricate ourselves from these stories and thoughts and so on. Well, do, do you think mindfulness is the method or a way to kind of just become familiar with the script? If we're going to use the movie analogy, that mindfulness kind of shows you the scripts that are your the habitual scripts that you're running in your mind. And yes. The, and 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 but it, and I I like. The way Ramdas talks about it, because he, it seems like he's saying you don't, don't try to change the script, right away. Just become very familiar with the character that you're playing, and it's not one character. You know, you're usually playing a few different characters in the movie, right? You've, you're playing the enemy character, you're playing the friend character, you're mm -hmm. playing the lover, you're playing the broken-hearted character. These are all scripts that you go to when there's different stuff in the world triggering these things. Yeah. And then we're, we're really good at it. What do you got there? Actually, you know, it makes me think, Robbie, it's a good time to come up because it suggests one method that your teacher, Robbie Svoboda, everybody. So uh, the other day in Rob, Robert's uh, afternoon session, workshop, one of the things that struck me, and, and I'm, this is perfect for what you just said, you have many different scripts, right? Many different me's that you believe in that you will use at any one time either fend off or attract or do whatever we need to do in terms of survival and so on. And then at one point the other day, you, you talked about his, his guru, Vimalananda, who would purposefully take on personalities 
Right. Can you go through that again, and then we can rip off of that. We can. Um, what did he do? It's um, well. Let me back up for just a moment, if I might. Uh, a friend of mine who met Vimalananda several times, and who I met in 1974. I had just started the Ayurvedic College in Pune, and he was getting his master's degree in Sanskrit at Deccan College in Pune. He was uh, an American. And um, has got his PhD and has been teaching at the University of Iowa for many years. His name is Fred Smith. And he's written a couple of books, but his most recent book was a 700-page volume called The Self-Possessed. And the basic point of this book is when normally when you think about India, you think about there's uh, nice images of gods and goddesses and people stand up and do arti to them and give them flowers and everything is nice and tidy. But as he looked behind the scenes and he being an academic studied various texts from beginning with the Vedas, it transpires that the real religion that is in among the people, the native people who are out there in the villages doing things, is the position, uh, the religion of being possessed by gods and goddesses, by spirits, by all kinds of things. So people are always getting possessed. And they get possessed in different ways to do different things. Um, I spend a lot of time up in Uttarakhand, which is uh, north of Delhi, basically. And uh, every village has its own devata. Devata means a deity. And most of the villages uh, that have a big deity, they will have an oracle along with the deity. So they'll have a smaller image. They'll have the main image in the temple. They'll have a smaller image that they put on what they call a palki, a small palanquin that's held on the shoulders of two men. And they have a guy, a third man, who's the interpreter. Almost always men, occasionally women. Sounds like the retreat. Um, in a different Jesus. sort of way. non-standard retreat, or at least from around here. And um, so you'll go and ask questions to the oracle, and according to the way the, the thing moves, that the person who is interpreting things will interpret what is going on. And this something similar happens in Himachal Pradesh, which is the next place over, and um, there's a uh, a fairly biggish town in Himachal Pradesh called Mandi. And in Mandi, after Mahashivaratri, which happens in February or March, the, f the next week after Mahashivaratri, all the devatas from all the hills around come, and they have a devata retreat, a devata mela. And you can go to any of the devatas, and you can ask them questions. And um, so there is... Coming through people. Coming through people. And there is, even in this area around Mundi, there is a 
Devata judge. And so if the people in a certain village feel like their Devata is not doing work for them properly, they will go and complain to the Devata judge. And the Devata judge will evaluate the situation. And if he finds that, in fact, that Devata has been remiss, then he will uh, order him not to be given any offerings for a period of time as a, as a punishment. So this is built into the fabric of and in different methods in different places. In Maharashtra, it's different, and everywhere is different. But it's all about making yourself open enough that something can come in and act through you. Do you... <clears throat> um, is, do, is this what happens when we're kids? Is this the idea? Is like we all get kind of possessed by a swarm of sort of... <clears throat> I don't know what you would call it. Behavior patterns that get that our parents got possessed by, that you're sort of looking at some kind of odd temporal, uh, well, in the case of its bad habits, like temp, temp time STDs that get passed from one generation to the next, you know? It's not like your parents have syphilis, but it's like your parents have, you know, they're neurotic. Your mom likes to vacuum way too much or something, and then you get a twitch. You know, and it's like, this is like some odd thing that's snowballing through time. And is it insane to analyze yourself from that perspective and think, oh, I'm essentially like a hive of spirits that got puked into me when I was a toddler by my parents. But not all of them are spirits. I think that's a good way. I mean, that's a good representation of that reality. A lot of them are just habit patterns. They're kind of like... And they're habit patterns that tend to, re uh, to re-stimulate one another, kind of like, in fact, having uh, the hiccups. You, you ha when you have the hiccups, in one of the nerves, a lot of energy accumulates, and then it suddenly releases itself. But in the act of releasing itself, it creates the conditions for the energy to accumulate again. So it creates this abnormal reflex arc. So a lot of that's what's actually happening a lot of the time. Exactly. You you're being imprinted by all kinds of different things as you're growing up. And it used to be you only had to worry about the neuroses of your parents. Now you have to worry about the neuroses of everybody who is creating all the things that you're that the child is being exposed to all the different you mean like images, YouTube and the, Every, the all of the those memes, things. all of those memes. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So have you ever been actually possessed? You seem like... Many times. Okay. What's your favorite one? Well, it's a good question. I'm not sure I've ever quite looked at it that way. But um, I do remember, and fortunately, I do not see any, uh, anyone who is uh, enforcing any kind of law that I may be breaking by saying what I'm about to say, and that is that I'm a cop. Just full disclosure. So, um, I have on more than one occasion, I have an affinity with snakes. I'm a Chinese world. I'm, a, you know, I was born in the year of the snake. So, um, I remember once after taking a heroic dose of mushrooms, in fact, I was in Australia in a place where, there, where, the, where 
there are two where the the natives there recognize two totemic animals, the goanna, the iguana, and the python. And of course, there are a lot of uh, um, poisonous snakes too, but the pythons are much more benign, and I have more affinity with them than the poisonous snakes. And and that was a that was a, a, a moment where that the not just a python uh, spirit, but it's something that was like even sort of like the kind of a dreamtime spirit of ur snake energy. It was a very interesting experience, and during that period, that was the only thing that was there. Definitely, was not I involved. You became a, a you, or you you sort of tuned into that energy that snakes come from. Yes, and for that period of time was definitely a snake and communicating with that the snake energy communicating with the snake energy. Was there not any just, message from it, or did it tell you anything? Specific? It did, but not something that I can articulate. I mean, it was working at some level that was much. Uh, you know, uh, pre linguistic, pre linguistic. Yeah, right. That's the problem, isn't it? Snake language. Yeah, snake it was language. definitely snake language. But what does that sound like? A lot of clicks and hisses. There was a lot of hissing going on. Cool. So back to Vimalananda. Yes, because. Oh, really? You're going to go to that when we've got someone who's been possessed by a snake? Okay. Yeah. I need to give you a podcast class. You already did. That's when some brilliant human is legitimately talking about a heroic dose of mushrooms, communicating with snakes. That's where you stay, baby. No. There's no going back. Viva. We got to forge ahead here, gang. We're in snake land now. No offense, that's your guru, and I mean—I don't mean any disrespect to that, but come on, this is a show. I want to hear about Vimalananda. So, because, because, because he had, and I, I trust this in you through everything that you've communicated about him, he has many cities and many abilities. And what he did seemed to me to be a very conscious act, which... Through reading the books, this was he was identified in that way consciously, and so he produced these different. He allowed these different personalities to come through him. But I'm not. That's why I want to a little explanation. And he did it. He did it for for this reason that he. He had a very subtle intellect, and people were always coming to him for different reasons. And he could almost always get a fairly clear perspective of what the karma was between him and that person. What sort of... Um, he liked to talk about urana nubandana. Urana in Sanskrit means debt, like when you owe something to someone. And... He was always fond of saying that, you know, traditionally in India, people focused on not life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, but on what your responsibilities were and what your debts are. 
So like traditionally, you have a debt to your mother for bringing, for, for holding you in her womb for nine months and feeding you from her breast milk and so on. You have a debt from your father who's provided you, among other things, an inher- inher- astral inheritance from the forefather line that because the mother is basically bringing things up from the earth and the I mean, both are doing that, but, you know, the, the predominance is the mother's an earth element thing because she's creating your physical body. And to balance that out through the father line is coming more of the astral influence. So you owe, it's not, nothing is free. You owe the ground you were born on because, I mean, the, the ground has, the ground could be all inviting other people to be born there and to create problems there instead of you. So what are you going to do to pay that back? You, Everyone who has taught you anything, you owe something to. Everyone who's ever fed you, you want something to. So he was always looking for what do I owe to people and how can I pay them back in a way that is as minimally karmically disturbing to me as is possible. So often he would find it useful to call something else in to act through him to interact with that person, deal with whatever needed to be dealt with, and that way he could remain um, aloof from the actual karmic implications of the event. Can you give a, an example of a time that you were there and you, actually, you saw him take on a personality to deal with somebody or pay back a karma or something? Um, well, it uh, happens so often. Let, let me... Uh, I mean, and sometimes it would happen deliberately, and sometimes it would just happen spontaneously. So, um, uh, what would be a good example of that? Um, I mean, he would... He, he, somebody needed to... Uh, somebody was not well, and uh, so he would invite a um, uh, one of the really powerful blood-drinking goddesses into himself, who um, who Kali is like Kali, Kali or Tara or Chinnamasta or someone like that, um, who um, because of her natural. Uh, motherliness and because of being ugra, because of being a very ugra means terrible or intense or so on, she's certainly not going to be squeamish about dealing with with some kind of very sticky, viscous, viscid karmas that need to be dealt with. So then uh, often I would just see him coming in that way. And he would usually... Um, what he told me was that often in order to transfer an effect from one person to another, it's often useful to use a, some kind of physical substance so that it will have a strong effect on the physical body. Sometimes he would recite a mantra into some water Sometimes he would give out, um, he, he used to uh, smoke cigars, and he would give ash out to people. And um, 
once I remember his, uh, uh, I never met this gentleman, but he, the father of his foster daughter, who I've known for the last 45 years, um, he was having some problem. So Vimalananda just said, here, take this, you know, I'm giving you some of these pills from this bottle. And he took the pills and he was fine. And three or four days later, he, the guy was, happened to notice the bottle that was in his what, like wife's um, cupboard. And it was a bottle for, that was, you know, she was using for some kind of menstrual complaint. <laughs> so he came back and started, he was, when in Bombay, when you're very friendly with someone, you make it a point to curse them enthusiastically. Just to show them how much you care. Oh. You communicate um, uh, warm feelings about their mother, sister, dog, cat, yeah. everything. So he expressed his appreciation for that in a, a colorful fashion. Because he like, said, I want to fuck your dog. Something like that, yes. Neem Crowley Baba cursed. Neem Crowley Baba cursed too, didn't he? He did the same thing. In you fact, you guys both had dirty gurus. <laughs> people, what the Indians would tell us, un unless he cursed you, you, you didn't get the big blessing. So. I love that, by the way. That's the coolest thing. Well, what I love about your stories about him and the stories you've told me versus like, you know, anytime you hear someone talking about their teacher and there's this sense of like, I bet I could offend you by saying the wrong thing about your teacher there's always a feeling like, whoa, something's off there. Or they try to make their teachers seem, you know, like, like they piss Chardonnay or something, you know? And there's this feeling of like, that's, something's off there. You know, you shouldn't do that. I, if you ask me, that's all. Only because you know they're human, right? And I like the cigar smoking cursing. I wouldn't like the cigar smoking. That would be annoying because no one likes that smell. But maybe if a guru was smoking, it would be nice. Good cigar is better than you might think. Really? And I have to say, I've, I've never either seen or heard of anyone pissing Chardonnay, but Vimalananda did tell a story once about when he was trying. He apparently had a, a car that I, had, I thought he was pulling my leg, but it, actually there was such a car as a Humber Super Snipe. <laughs> so he, was, he had a Humber Super Snipe, but no gasoline no petrol to go in it so he had a friend that he was trying to drive somewhere who was a sadhu named mangalagiri maharaj who said don't worry and pissed into the tank there you go and he thought oh my god this is the end of the engine but no they just drove worked they were gonna go but this is to me don't try this at home yeah. you know that this is let me let's talk just very quickly. I don't mean to derail anything here. I'm sorry. I don't mean to suddenly get all vulgar or anything like that. But having read some of your books, some of this it was things your teacher did, I w couldn't wrap my head around. It was legitimately like offensive, you know, some of this stuff and the agoris in general. You know, when you see them, they're drinking out of skulls. They're covered in cremation ash. There, this is a in the world we're in right now. There is a expectation, and I think a fair expectation, for a very specific kind of unwritten code of ethics in all representatives of all world religions, regardless of the religion. And 
I think many people these days are getting quite confused when they hear like, wait, your guru, your guru went horse, what was it, bet on horses? He smoked cigars? Does, does this drank mean- scotch. What? Dr I know, drank scotch. We, these days, we're like, that can't be a, that's not, that's a, that's not a good thing. If everybody's smoking cigars and betting on horses, and Jesus never went to the track. So far as we know. <laughs> did that? Yeah, maybe he did. There is that period of time that we don't know what he was doing. <laughs> okay. You got me there. <laughs> yeah. He went to Vegas. We don't know what he was doing. That's cool. But do you know what I'm saying? Like, could, what would your teacher and, and our teacher, our guru, what would happen if they were functioning in the identical way these days? Would it go over? Would it work in the age of cell phones, recording everything? Wouldn't there be something where people would be like, nope, that guy is like, uh, that's not, that guy's no, that's a mess. Well, for example, when we would go to the race course, he would ride dress up in a suit. I would dress up in a suit. We would go to the race course and we'd behave like people at the race course. In another context, he would behave like something else. So his point was, number one, to be as invisible as possible most of the time. And number two, um, do whatever he thought was what he needed to do at that moment. Cool. And he very much did not. He did not want to attract people. And he went out of his way to make people, to offend people, to make them go away. Is that because he knew that the level he was at and the teachings he was giving, if someone wasn't ready for it, they could, in a sense, you know, it could knock them off course. And so it was better for him to sort of camouflage himself than to be out front. You know, let let people find him. It was part of that, but it was also that a lot of the people who came, you know, claiming to be interested in spiritual things were really not interested in spiritual mm. things. They were interested in having him tell them how spiritually advanced they were, or he was. They were interested in extracting something and then going off and commercializing that right. or whatever. Isn't Neem Crowley Baba was like that too, Raghu? You have a few great stories of the way he would. What was it? Jow. He would jow people. And well, no, he was jowing people all day long. But, I mean, the best story like that is Ramdas had a professor friend who came uh, to Nainital, and then Ramdas was going to bring him to meet Maharaji. And before he did so, he was regaling this professor in the miracles. He knows everything. He knows past, present, future, Antariyami. So, he, so the guy was like, wow, it's incredible. And then he brought him down to Kenchi, and he met Maharaji, and Maharaji started asking him questions. You come from Buffalo? No, Los Angeles. Okay, you're a, you're a, you're a farmer? No, college professor. Everything Maharaji said was absolutely wrong. The guy went away completely, like, demoralized that, what the hell was Ramdas talking about? And the guy left, Maharaji said, did I say the right thing? <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that cool? I, you know what I love about these stories is because what it says to me is my own projection is, is a blindfold 
that is keeping me, God knows how many people, uh, uh, incredible people, I have just not seen because they don't fit yeah, right. into the map of what these people are supposed to look like. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, exactly. And that's why he was so great, Vima Lananda, because he expressly did that, and from what I understand, day to day. So there's one thing, though, we want, I want to get into with Robin, and, and that's more about what the work that we've been doing, identifying the me, the story, the habitual patterns, neurotic tendencies, and so on. But now you said one thing that we have not delved into at all is how the role, of course, of karma and reincarnation. The what we bring into this incarnation and so on. Now the other day you said when karma came up, you said, "Well, that is." absolutely not understandable by rational mind, by intellect, so let's forget about that. Well, we can't forget about it. And you and I did a whole podcast that led me to do, I don't know if Jack is here, do stuff with Jack and Sharon, and just to really delve into karma. So in relation to the patterns that are formed, well, first start, give us some kind of way to get a relative shall we say, understanding of karma. So the third book in the trilogy that Robert wrote, the Agora trilogy, is called The Law of Karma. And I, as far as I'm concerned, it is the best uh, edification that I have ever read that through this book you get at least a sense of, its, of, of the power of what karma really is and the effect of every moment that what we are doing in terms of creating it. And Robert's talked a little bit about it, but can we back up to just give a little bit of a relative understanding of it and then how it really helps to form that, I mean, the, the formation of our story? Well, I'm... Um lived in India for six years, and that was studying Ayurveda. That's the reason I met Vimalananda. And um, Ayurveda is medicine. Ayurveda is all about trying to assist people to deal with what is, frankly, their karma. Sometimes it's karma from a previous incarnation. Sometimes it's maybe ancestral karma that's acting through them. Sometimes it's karma that has happened because they have uh, eaten too many cheeseburgers in this life or whatever. Um, but Ayurveda is all about dealing with karma. And I'm also a student of Jyotisha, which means Indian divination, which means trying to understand how the karma, how, how, what sorts of karmas are influencing a person and try to assist them to find some way to work with those karmas. Um, and so there is always the question, or rather there has always been the question in the various traditions in India as to whether, in fact, there is any use in trying to do anything. Because 
you won't ever know. Let's suppose suppose you have a disease and you take a treatment. It's possible that the treatment actually did something. It's also possible that the treatment works solely through the placebo effect and you got well. It's also possible that Rahu and Mars and Saturn moved out of your eighth house and then automatically everything became hunky-dory again. We don't know. So you can't ever know once you have tried to ameliorate a situation whether your action is actually ameliorating it or not. And that's been a question that's been going on for a long time. Um, so there was for a while, and this is, I'm being kind of roundaboutish, but that's also traditional. <laughs> there was a, tr a tradition back at the time of the, you know, 2,000 years ago when the chief Ayurvedic texts were being compiled. There was a tradition expressed, in fact, in some of the Upanishads that said that if you have a serious disease, you should make it a point not to do anything about it because you only have the serious disease because you have some bad karmas. So you should experience those bad karmas completely so that you can have them exhaust themselves. So next time when you get born, you will be born without those bad karmas and you will be in a better position. So, and so there's a discussion in the text that Charaka Samhita, Charaka Samhita says some people feel this way. But, there's always a but. But, says the text, suppose it is your karma to meet a physician. Why should you choose to experience only your bad karmas and not take advantage of the physician? And so I thought, well, this makes sense. And, um, and then, it, as I was reading through the Gospel of Ramakrishna, I read something similar. And Ramakrishna was telling a story about a guru and a disciple. And the guru said to the disciple, go out into the world now, disciple, and everyone you see, see the God in that disciple. And so he went out into the world and he saw a cat and he said, oh, I see the God and the cat. And he was expressing love towards the cat. And then he saw a dog and expressed love to the dog. And then suddenly, running down the road was an elephant who had gone into must. So must is, there's a period of, once a year when a bull elephant becomes completely uncontrollable and it happened suddenly and the mahout, the elephant driver, was still on top of the elephant and the mahout was shouting, run, get out of the way, my elephant has gone into must and he was holding on for dear life. But the disciple was saying, oh, the elephant, it is also, I see the God in the elephant and just while he was seeing the God in the elephant, he was run over by the elephant. Fortunately for him, the elephant was not was in a big hurry going berserk, and so he did not stop and trample him effectively. He just sort of kicked him out of the way. But being kicked by an elephant is not a joke. 
being kicked by a five-ton animal. And so he picked himself up and put himself together and went back to the guru and said, the guru said, you know, it's like, oh my God, why do I, why me, why me? And he said, okay, now what? What is the story? And he started to whine and say, oh my God, the cat, the elephant. And so the guru said, explain to me, please, why you were trying to listen to the elephant god and not listening to the mahout god who was telling you to get out of the way. <laughs> so we have the choice. There are karmas happening in all directions of all kinds of things and trying to pick out all the karmas and for us to try to decide which is the right karma and which karma we should involve and invest in and which karma we should not invest in, that's very difficult. We can we can make an effort to try to do the right thing, but often doing the right thing does not at all involve this kind of theoretical business. It's like, the mahout is telling me to get out of the way. I, at least, will get out of the way because I trust the mahout who is riding the elephant, who knows the elephant clearly, because if he didn't know the elephant, he wouldn't be able to hang on to the elephant. So, in the same way, I believe as I believe the vast majority of doctors and astrologers and people who are trying to assist other people believe, that it is possible to at least mitigate to some degree the miseries of, of, of the people or the animals or the trees or whoever it is you're trying to work with. And mitigating that means they may still have to experience whatever karma they're experiencing, but perhaps we can reduce its intensity. Vimalananda used to explain it this way. Suppose in your karma it is written that a rock is going to fall on your head. The only way you can avoid having the rock fall on your head, if it is written the rock must fall on your head, is to have someone take that karma away from you which is uncommon. But, he said, it is going to make a giant difference if the rock weighs one gram or one kilo or one ton. If it weighs a gram, you may not even feel it. If it weighs a kilo, you will certainly feel it. If it weighs a ton, that's, you won't feel it. And if it weighs a kilo, you will feel it. But suppose you put a helmet on then it may bounce off the helmet. You still may get a headache, but at least your skull will be in one piece. So there are ways to not necessarily get rid of the karma altogether, but at least to make it not quite so intense so that the effect of the karma, and he used to say when, when saints, you know, when, if you, someone is unwell and you bless them to become well, to some degree, the in, that intensity of that karma, the person who gives the blessing or the curse, because the curse from a good saint always turns into a blessing, the person who gives that shakti out is going to have to experience some of that. But if if that person was going to have to, it was going to take you know a month to go through it. Maybe that saint can go through it in a week or a day or an hour. It'll be way more intense, but they have they have much more a much more powerful 
experience of reality to allow that to work through them. Wow. And of course, so, we, we wait, did may see... I ask, I, may I ask a question related to this, Raghu, please? Now, again, this is not going to be as grounded as this question, but I mean it. I don't mean it frivolously. I've been thinking, if I get time with you, what would, I, what would be the question that's bugging me that I'd want to ask? It relates. In my comparatively small studies of this, this sort of stuff, I, I haven't found much regarding time uh, in, in the sense like, you know, the normal way people think of reincarnation or the normal way I think people like me think of it is you die, bardo state, rebirth based on some momentum, karma, and but it's always going into the future. But I've been wondering, is there anything written about time itself that maybe the process of reincarnation doesn't, it doesn't mean you're going to reincarnate into the future, you could reincarnate into the past. And also, is there any kind of talk regarding like the multiverse or this idea of like con concurrent versions of your incarnation happening, like string theory. So on one of these strings, you're the boulder lands on your head. The other one, you're wearing the helmet. The other one, it's a pebble. The other one, it's like a small headache. The other one, it's nothing at all. And that these are all happening simultaneously and you could sort of pendulum through them um, with some, like, uh, with Will or with a good guru or with a teacher? The multiverse concept, I don't remember Vimalananda talking about. And I mean, I, I don't think that as that specific con context or concept was available 40 years ago. Right. But um, he, he was very much of the opinion that the standard way that people talk about, you know, I, here I am, and I'm going to die, and then I am going to be reborn over here. That sometimes that happens, but it is also the case that sometimes a piece of me get, may get reborn over here, a piece of me might get stuck in a plant for a while. A piece of me might go into an animal for a while. Another piece of me might get held on, you know, the some moon of Saturn for a while. Or there, there may be a lot of different things because, as he pointed out, even though the personality, the, the, I, I was recently rereading. Um, a book called uh, In Search of the Miraculous by Auspinsky. So it was Auspinsky's uh, uh, account of his, um, of Gurdjieff's teachings in Russia during World War I and the Russian Revolution and so on. And Gurdjieff reiterated repeatedly that, you know, it, 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 he made this point again and again that there are so many different personalities and there's so many different, you know, you're, 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 you're organized in one way when you perform some karma. And, and if it is, let's just say, you as the personality that is being reborn, and if in fact you had more than one personality that was actually... Per, per, 
repeatedly appearing inside you, then it's very likely those karmas still have to be worked out somehow. So the whole point of being reborn is I perform some karmas in this lifetime. And those karmas um, are going to produce reactions. But those reactions may not happen immediately. And even if they, even let's say I perform a karma, uh, I uh, hit you over the head with this fan. God forbid that I would do that, but suppose I did that. This produces a karma. Perhaps this has a strong negative effect on you. So the karma is then there. It's it's stuck in your per- perceptorium, and you're holding on to it. And you're why do you do that? Yes. The rest of my life, I'm just like God. Yes. Everything was going great at the retreat. Then he smacked me with a fan. And and, and then when you die, there is that moment when you think, you know, it ruined my life. And then you die at that moment. And then that's going to be the thing that draws you back. And then maybe that will be that you you will go and look for me somewhere. But maybe, meanwhile, I have been, my karmas have dragged me into Borneo. And you were looking for me in Pasadena. And then uh, you discover I'm not there. But it could easily take quite a while for that to take place. Well, what has happened is your karmas have dragged you into this podcast. Yeah. And so clearly you did something terrible to me in a previous life. But I'm joking. But uh, I don't want mean to labor this strange point. Fortunately, you're working it out right now. Thank you. I like working it out with you. I appreciate it. And I'm, uh, you're brilliant. And so I'm sorry. I don't mean to keep... I, this is the stuff that grabs my mind. I'm just... I'm specifically... And I appreciate your answer. But I'm really curious about time and in in your teachings what happens to the past can we pray for people in the past when we do when we say i I, may all sentient beings find peace does that just mean beings now and in the future are we literally referring to the past as well i'm just curious if any of this stuff gets picked up because everyone will say you know god god has transcended to time everything's happening at once and the implication would be that our time space, uh, a sense of going into the future, the passing of minutes is actually a framing of human neurology and that there could be some actual way to uh, alleviate the karma of past versions of ourselves, And even maybe karma ripples into the past. I was just wondering these things. And, and that's the principle behind, for example, worshiping your ancestors. So actually, yes, doing... Influencing those people who have provided you with your DNA, who you have to be very thankful to, who you owe a debt to. And maybe one nice way to work out that debt is those people who are still trying to identify with that DNA, you assist them to become freed of some of their own blockages and limitations and so on. So that, and so even it's in the past to you, but you may be well influencing them in the present wherever they happen to be. Wow. Cool. That's great. Um, I just want to go back to understanding the, the tremendous subtleties of what we create on a day-to-day basis and are unaware of. 
and the, so the creation of karma and some idea of mindfulness around that. Um, well, as, as I was taught, any act that you perform, identifying yourself as the doer, creates, is a karma and will create some kind of reaction. And obviously there's some things that you are going to be more enthusiastically identifying yourself with and some things you'll be less enthusiastically identifying yourself with. And so to the degree that that identification occurs, to that degree that karma is going to be particularly noteworthy for you. Um, and, I, you know, I was thinking about this, not, I mean, this is not exactly uh, what you were talking about just now, but I think it's not too far away. Um, Baba used to tell people to feed other people which is no doubt a nice thing to do. It's a good karma. Um, but I had to wonder, because this is something that Vimalananda explained at one time, that if one of the reasons he was, he may well have known that many of the people, if not most of the people, if not almost every one of the people that was coming to him were going to get reincarnated. And so... Um, it would not be unreasonable to think that perhaps one of, one of the reasons he was encouraging people to do that is so that when they did get reincarnated, they would actually have some food coming in their direction. So not only are you doing something nice for someone here, you're preparing a, a vibration in the universe that is going to benefit you in the future as well. Oh, this, this may, you know, this is something that I was thinking. No one ever talks about like Buddha's uncles or, you know, all the various pr precursors to the Buddha. You know what I mean? Like you, you hear like the uh, Buddha's mom, I don't know. It's and dad. Dad, but it doesn't go to, it's not like the charioteer, some people, but you, you know, they don't talk too much about all the various people that cross paths with Siddhartha Gautama prior to the enlightenment. And so that's something I, I, I like to think about is this thing we're doing here. We might be like laying down track. We might be building some structure that 50 years, a thousand years from now, because of this work, a Buddha appears. You know, we, and in that way, we all get to be like little atomic bits of that being. You know, I mean, theoretically, every bit of bread the Buddha ate, every wind that blew against the Buddha, every single thing that led to that moment was part of what created that being. Like if you pulled out of time, that's what the being would look like, right? Do you ever think about that? Like maybe yeah. we're all just... Definitely. Every, everything... Intention doesn't count for everything, but intention is, does count for something. So if you have the if you get up in the morning and you have the realization that you're going to die and you have the intention of trying to do something benevolent and useful and productive to not just keep yourself from 
keep your own ass from frying like a frito in the skillet of Hades. And I still don't mean to stop you. It's a weird coincidence. You said Frito, because when you were talking about feeding people, I was reminded of a time I was telling my wife this, that I, she was like, don't feed the birds here. And I told her, yeah, once I gave a Frito to a duck and I was dumb and the duck started like choking on the Frito. I was on a date. You killed the duck. We're both like looking at this duck, like making like, ah, ah, ah. I'm like, did, thinking, you, like, did I, you not do the Heimlich maneuver on the duck? <laughs> <laughs> I did. CPR too. And we brought the duck back. But no, the duck was fine. The Frito went down into its throat. But you know what you're saying? I was thinking like, dear God, just the, we were so accidentally powerful. Yeah. That we can just by a simple flick of a wrist, this duck could have had a family. I don't know. <laughs> it have a family. But uh, it's, tr- I mean, humans are influencing, even by small things, we're influencing yes. things much more than we're aware of that. So it's always good to try to at least request this nature to have you move through the world in a way that's beneficial for everybody. You especially, and everybody else. (laughs) (laughs) He got you already. Thoughts. Even the subtlest of thoughts have gigantic effect. After we did that thing together, and I reread Love Karma, it was like moment to moment, I had a lot of awareness of the subtlety of my motivational thoughts, etc., and the effect that they were having without me saying a word out loud. loud. That's what... Lord Buddha says also, you're, you're the actions of body, speech, and mind. So every action of the mind is having an effect on the universe. It may be having a very subtle effect, but really subtle effects can be extremely profound. If you take an atom and you break it into pieces, it has a dramatic effect. And it was one Okay, not one atom, but a very small number of atoms. And but the 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 uh, the fact that you have broken that has created a tremendous effect externally. So, do you, are you saying that uh, it's better for us to be more concerned with intention than trying to get into the deep math of karma? That you could get lost in this. It seems so complex. When I was reading what you sent me that you wrote, I thought there was just karma. You know, there's a thing. You're going to get bad karma. You shouldn't have done that. You, you know, shoplifted the bong when you were 14. I was dumb. You're just going to be with... But you, you talk about these various types of karma. Karma that's coming into being. Karma that's like a seed. You know, it, it's, it's, this seems so complex to me. That it gets like OCD level. Like if I spend too much time calculating this stuff, I will be paralyzed. So I wonder if you could talk more about intention and specifically how much is it possible to have an autonomous and non-karmic connected intention? If we do decide we're going to have a benevolent intention, isn't that just a chain of karma happening? It really doesn't matter. It just happened to arise in us at the time. Um, I would certainly say that the average intention is also a karma. But there might be moments that the intention is manifesting itself through you, which is another reason why Vimalananda liked having Telang Swami or 
the Kenaram Bagori or whoever come into him so that they could express their intention, much more refined intention coming from a non-human perspective, wow. much, much, much more likely to produce an effect that was mainly good with a minimal, minimal, minimal amount of, of wow. turbulence. So you're saying you could bring in an awakened being intentionally into you, and then that could break the chain of karma. Or, or at least break enough of the chain that then there would be... Of course, correct. And it could yeah, dissolve itself. Wow. This is our people with uh, Maharaji. One of the first, most obvious experiences that we all had was we recognized that that was happening that he being who he is and he can ameliorate karma he can change karma he which this is where it gets beyond rational mind because ultimately he's not doing anything so all of that was written as well but that's that goes into a whole other area around <clears throat> grace and karma that uh, would be a whole other podcast.